Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from both sides of the debate over the need for a change in conservatives' approach to organized labor. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Dominic Pino of National Review. He is Thomas Rhodes Journalism Fellow at the National Review Institute. First, we talk with Chris Griswold. He is Policy Director at American Compass. You can find more at AmericanCompass.org. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Chatting today about the question, should there be a rethinking of the conservative approach to organized labor? And I want to start by asking you why there would be a need to change an approach that generally has been successful for conservatives. Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by successful. Um, if you mean electorally successful, uh, maybe, although even that is starting to show its limits. Uh, but if you mean economically successful or successful in terms of a healthy social fabric, then no, I'm not sure I would agree that it's been successful for conservatives. Uh, I don't think the decline of a of a healthy version of the labor movement is something conservatives uh, should cheer. Um, I mean, just look at what ha- has happened to wages over the last few decades. Um, we did some work here at American Compass uh, to develop a cost of thriving index that offers a way to understand what's what's happened for working families. And the index measures the number of weeks a typical worker would need to work in a given year to earn enough income to afford an average middle-class lifestyle, a food, housing, healthcare, transportation, higher education for a child. In 1985, that Cody index figure was 39.7. In 2022, it was 62.1. And what that means, in other words, is that in 1985, a typical male worker working full-time could support a family on 40 weeks of income and then still have the rest of the year left over to save uh, his wages. Uh, a comparable worker working full-time in 2022 would work the whole year and still come up 10 weeks short. That's what that 62 figure means. Um, this is not the prosperity that American workers were promised. Um, and it's no wonder, I think, that working people in America feel so unheard and unvalued, and they do feel unheard. There's an MIT professor who surveyed uh, American workers, his name is Thomas Cochin, and he found that American workers experience a a massive gap between the voice they feel they should have and the voice they feel they actually do have at work. Um, Between 50 and 60% of American workers have less influence than they want in the workplace on issues, not just wages and benefits, but other things like job security, protection against abuse, by the values of their employer, the respect afforded to employees, and so on. Um, And we found the same thing. We've done surveys of American workers and found that one of the most striking uh, findings of of that survey research is the degree to which the character of worker management relations determines job satisfaction. Uh, Workers who say they don't have enough influence at work rate their jobs very poorly. Uh, Workers who feel like they have enough influence rated very highly. Um, The decline, I think, of mechanisms that allow for worker voice and power uh, is not something conservatives should, should celebrate. Working Americans really have been left behind, and it's been bad for American workers. And we can talk about this, but I, I think you also see the conservative movement starting to realize that it's it's bad politically as well. And the more savvy uh, elected officials in the Republican Party uh, have started to take note of that and talk differently when it comes to worker voice and worker power. 
you've written and have made a specific distinction between libertarian economics and conservative economics. How would you define a platform of conservative economics? I think conservative economics recognizes that at the center of the nation's liberty and prosperity is a family, a community, and an industry. Uh, and that uh, the purpose of economics uh, and, and the purpose of an, of an economy and of good economic poli policy is to ensure that families and local communities and national industry can thrive uh, such that the common good and the national interest are served. Um, it turns out that uh, libertarian economics, meaning simply getting the government out of the way in every instance all of the time, um, is not always conducive to those ends. Um, sometimes government's the problem, but sometimes it's not. And in fact, sometimes you need good policy to set parameters around the economy such that what the private sector ends up doing uh, redounds to the benefit of average Americans. Um, a really good example uh, is sports. But the purpose of professional sports uh, is entertainment. That's what. That's why the NBA exists. Mm -hmm. um, but the the purpose that the two teams bring to the to the to the court or the field is to win, um, and that's. That's how I see the free market, right? The, the competition in, uh, of firms in the free market generates uh, uh, the kind of activity we need, um, but only within the rules of the game. Um, and you see in, in sports, sometimes it gets boring and it stops having that, that spillover effect of entertainment we want. So what do you do? Well, you have to raise the pitcher's mound. Mm -hmm. You have to invent the three-point line. Mm -hmm. um, it is the role of policymakers not to supplant the free market, um, but to ensure that the activities of the free market happen within a policy environment uh, that that is conducive to the common good. Has the realignment of voters that we've seen post-2016 uh, expedited the, the speed at which conservatives need to change the way they talk to voters and the way they need to reach out to voters? Absolutely. Uh, and I, I think you see exactly that happening. Um, I think if you look at the U.S. Senate, particularly Senators Marco Rubio, J.D. Vance, Josh Hawley, Senator Braun from Indiana, uh, and, a, and a lot of other leaders have started talking along these lines. Not just uh, that the Republican Party needs to be the party of workers. There are a lot of a lot of folks saying that, but that the Republican Party needs to be the party of worker power. Um, Rubio, for example, endorsed the unionization effort of Amazon workers in Alabama. Uh, many of the senators I just named took the side of railway, unionized railway workers in recent months when Congress was forced to decide mm -hmm. whether or not those workers would get a few sick days, which, by the way, was a totally reasonable request. Um, and I think the and you look, I mean, President Trump will be skipping the forthcoming GOP primary debate to go talk to union workers. Um, I think the savvier Republican politicians have realized that being seen as, or actually, in fact, being uh, the party of a kind of country club Republicans in big business is not where the country is or where conservative voters are anymore. And while on the one hand, that's a new development, on the other hand, it's a, re a return to style. Um, Republicans used to campaign for union votes all the time, uh, Eisenhower, Nixon, even Reagan. Mm -hmm. It's only recently that this has become a, a partisan issue. Um, and even now, if you look at the membership of the building trades, for example, not the leadership, which is very partisan, but the membership out in the in the country, um, it's 50-50 in the building trades between, you know, Trump Biden in 2020, Trump Clinton in 2016. Um, the actual working class is is politically diverse, and it's right that uh, uh, the Republican Party speak to their concerns and, and compete for the, for their votes. 
Um, and the other way, I think, in which that's a return to form, I mean, think back to the post-war period in, in America, in which we saw high wages, thriving industry and innovation, and widely shared prosperity. How did that happen? A big part of how it happened was that workers felt like they were active participants in this national economic project. They were partners um, because they had access to mechanisms of organized voice and power. Scholars call it countervailing power. They simply they didn't have to simply take what was given um, from employers. They could instead come to reasonable settlements where everyone felt like they were winning. Um, and in terms of economic power balance between labor and capital, it was a much better system than we have today. Um, now, I'm not saying we should be nostalgic for the social context of the 50s. Obviously, people of color and women were excluded from that prosperity. Um, but for those who did have access, it worked extremely well. And now, I think we're exactly right to try and ensure that everyone has access to that kind of voice. And, and smart Republican politicians are seeing that. Chris Griswold is with us from American Compass, AmericanCompass.org. So this real-time example that we could discuss, uh, the, the current UAW strike, how would you advise, recommend a conservative sympathetic to your argument here to talk, to approach, to discuss this current UAW strike? Well, as I mentioned, President Trump is planning on going to speak to those workers uh, shortly. Um, there have been a few Republican senators who have expressed their sympathy for the workers' concerns. And, and I think it's useful to note what that strike is about without getting into specifics and deciding whether or not you know, one should endorse that specific strike. It's useful to, to, to step back and, and see what it's about. It's about two things, primarily. One uh, is the windfall profits that the big automakers have made, partly because of past government intervention in 2008. Um, the, the companies have done very well. Salaries for executives have, have exploded and, and workers want to keep pace. And that's, that's a legitimate concern. They made sacrifices after the recession. The industry did well and, and they want to feel like they are partners in the process. They're, they're part of the value creation process as well. They're not just production inputs like steel or chips or, or rubber that you can try and source at the lowest possible price. They're American citizens and co-participants, co-value creators. Um, uh, that's point number one. And second point, and this is what's really interesting, because I think a lot of people try and lump in labor and the progressive movement as if they were one and the same. Mm -hmm. um, it's also about the, the green transition and the, the transition to a, an electric vehicle market. This strike in large part is about how that transition should happen. Um, do we want China dominating the EV market as they currently are? No, of course not. But these workers very rightly are pointing out that, for example, EV uh, construction and assembly you know, requires fewer parts and therefore fewer jobs for them. Um, those jobs tend at the moment to offer lower wages than, than the current jobs related to internal combustion engine cars. Um, workers have every right to be upset by that. And that uh, is far from being kind of you know, swallowing the progressive party line. That's a challenge to the Democratic Party coalition. They have a big problem figuring out how to square the circle on that. Mm. Um, and so I think it's a good example of how when, when workers are actually allowed to speak their minds, they usually say things that challenge the typical party divisions in, in D.C. Um, and I think it's time that D.C. recognize that. And, and again, as I say, I'm very encouraged that a, a lot of folks in the Republican Party have recognized that and started to speak, to speak differently. Can you be pro-worker? without being pro-union, or are unions essential to this operation? 
It's a great question. I would say that to be pro-worker means to be pro-worker power. Uh, and that means a couple of things. I mean, we can go all the way back to, I mean, even Adam Smith knew this. Um, <laughs> you go back to Adam Smith, uh, you know, father of modern economics and the wealth of nations. He's got a great quote in which he says, upon all ordinary occasions, employers have the advantage in a dispute and force workers into compliance with their terms. Um, John Stuart Mill, you know, beloved of libertarian e e economics, also understood the same thing. Here's a quote from him. The laborer in an isolated condition, unable to hold out even against a single employer, will, as a rule, find his wages kept down at the lower limit, while workers sufficiently organized may under favorable circumstances attain to the higher. And then Mill goes on to say that, by the way, uh, if anyone doesn't agree that it's good <laughs> that workers attain higher wages, he, he doesn't want to have anything to do with them morally. Um, you know, wise economic uh, economic thinkers have always understood that individual workers are not well positioned to have a reasonable and fair negotiation with employers. There's just a baked-in power differential, and so if you want. Uh, workers and employers to meet on equal terms and be able to come to reasonable settlements the way we saw again in the, in the 1950s, in the post-war period, the golden age of American capitalism and prosperity. Um, you do need mechanisms of worker power where they can work together to express their voice. Now, does that mean that you need to be all in on the current system of unionization as defined in the National Labor Relations Act? Not at all. I think that system is broken in many ways. I and mean, part of the problem that the Democratic Party has is that it is unwilling to look past that broken system through other options. It's unwilling to reform that system or to replace it with something else. I think we should be looking at both of those things and consider a whole range of options. Um, we can make the current system work better while we have it, and, and we can also consider entirely new arrangements. I'll give you a good example. Um, this is how Germany does it, for example. And by the way, Germany has been extremely successful as a global manufacturing leader. So mm -hmm. this is entirely compatible with, with being a, a, a manufacturing power. They have non-adversarial works councils in individual workplaces. These councils don't collectively bargain. They don't kind of go to the mat to fight with employers about wages and benefits. They exist as a collaborative convening space where workers and managers can hatch things out and figure things out in a peaceable and collaborative manner. And then the actual bargaining, the hardcore bargaining on, on, on wages and, and benefits and so on happens at the industry level. Um, and that prevents a race to the bottom on wages where individual firms are all trying to undercut each other on wages, which, you know, is a reasonable thing to do. If you're, if you're in a highly competitive industry and you can uh, get yourself a competitive advantage by cutting wages, you'll do it. Um, when you bargain at the industry level in that way, um, you prevent that. You just set up a, a floor. And then you let those firms compete on other things like quality and innovation and so on. Hmm. And that system works a lot better than what we do in the U.S. So do I, do I think that being pro-worker means to be pro-union? I think being pro-worker means being pro-worker power and that the, the left has failed to adequately think through other options beyond our current broken NLRA system. In that 2016 realignment that I'll speak, I'll speak generally um, we saw some blue-collar workers in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan come to President Trump and support his candidacy, and others, college-educated women, suburban voters, moved mm -hmm. the other direction. It was, a, it, was a, it was a swap in a way. 
if if conservatives change the approach to uh, to unions to organized labor, is it not just another swap, but in this case, picking up more of those blue collar type voters, and perhaps this time losing some of the small business owners who are generally favorable to conservatives and candidates, um, and uh, you know fund a lot of those local campaigns as well? Is it another swap uh, in terms of what who, which voters are moving where? I don't think it has to be. Um, I, I don't think that's inevitable at all. And we've seen in the last few uh, elections how vital the, the working class vote r- really is. Um, and you also saw in the most recent midterms uh, a counterexample, if I can be frank, of what happens when the Republican Party fails to bring a coherent economic agenda to the American people. Um, they you know, may have won the House, but only barely and, and failed to take the Senate. And, and I think the lesson there is how important it is to have a an economic agenda that speaks to what working and frankly middle-class Americans are feeling. They're feeling enormous pressure. They are feeling devalued and disenfranchised and voiceless. One, one final question, and, and that is, is this effort worthwhile if you are not capable or not able to turn the leadership of organized labor? Uh, unions spend a lot of money to elect Democratic candidates. If you have mm-hmm. the votes, but not the, the the money and the organization of the unions behind this, is it still worth this effort? I, I think what I would say is that the better a job we do at through good policy, offering a wider menu of options to workers on the ways they can organize, on the different structures available to them, um, or even so that the existing union structure is is not quite so stifling. Um, if we do that, I think workers themselves are likely to solve the problem you're talking about. We surveyed, as I mentioned, uh, about 3,000 American working class people and found of those that, that would be interested in some type of worker organization representing them, they were very hostile to having that organization focus on kind of the hot button political issues that DC is worried about and that a lot of the highly progressive uh, uh, union leadership in DC is worried about. What they cared about was bread and butter issues back home. Um, I think giving workers a greater voice is actually a corrective to the highly partisan dynamic you're talking about. The more workers themselves speak, the less you're gonna hear about uh, these these issues that that, that elites in, in DC care about. And the more you're gonna hear about issues that working people and middle-class people out in America care about. Chris Griswold is policy director at American Compass. You can find out more information at AmericanCompass.org. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here on The Future of Freedom. Thanks so much for having me. Now to hear the argument from the other side of the issue, Dominic Pino joins us, Thomas Rhodes Journalism Fellow at National Review Institute. Dominic, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. Speaking today on the topic of rethinking Should there be a rethinking of conservatives' approach to organized labor? We should define that approach first, Dominic. How would you define the current and, I guess, long-standing approach that conservatives have had to the labor unions and organized labor here in the U.S.? Uh, That's right, Scott. There has been a long-standing approach, and it's been a very successful approach for conservatives. Um, There's a couple different ways to define it. I really like the way that Michael Watson defines it at the Capital Research Center. He has three points of the conservative approach to labor unions, which is restoring volunteerism to union membership by opposing laws that coerce workers to join unions and coerce union members to follow union leadership. That's the first point, uh, volunteerism. Second point is 
subjecting unions' internal operations to the scrutiny and governance that they deserve, given the course of powers that federal law grants unions. Um, the idea there is that because the National Labor Relations Act basically puts the federal government on the side of organized labor in a lot of different contexts, that the um, you know internal uh, financial records and things like that of labor unions deserve public scrutiny in much the same way that we treat publicly traded companies, for example, mm -hmm. um, that are on the stock markets. Um, so uh, transparency is basically the second point. So we got volunteerism, transparency, and then the third one is uh, limiting the potential damage that labor disputes can cause to the broader American economy and the American consumer. And that's really the the guiding principle of a lot of uh, conservative uh, policy historically on labor unions, which was in, in the aftermath of uh, a big strike or something that was destructive to the economy, voters rewarded conservatives who said that they would push back on that kind of stuff. And so um, that's how we got things like the Taft-Hartley Act, for example, um, which uh, was passed actually over Harry Truman's veto hmm. in, 19, uh, in 1947. Uh, and that was the first time that Republicans had controlled Congress in, in, in a very long time after, after uh, Franklin Roosevelt had his, his, his run uh, at the federal government. So, um, so those three principles, I think, voluntarism, transparency, and, um, and, and limiting potential damage to the economy, I think those are sort of the three three of the guiding principles to the conservative approach to organized labor. Principles have been there for a long time, and you argue they have been successful for a long time for conservatives. Why do you think that has been the case? Why has that been a recipe for, for success? Um, I think it's because primarily uh, unions in the United States have always, well, maybe not always, but certainly for at least the last 75 years, have viewed their role as a primarily political one. And... Um, and and that political role is is to support and 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 aid the political left. And so, uh, Republicans, I think, sensibly uh, realized that and, and realized that there were there were problems with the um, sort of New Deal order that, that that Franklin Roosevelt and his his Democratic Party created in the 1930s. Um, the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, you know, this is something that Joe Biden says all the time, by the way, which is that. And he's actually right about it, which is that he says um, that, uh, you know, the, the federal government is on the side of unions. And it is because the National Labor Relations Act uh, gives gives the federal government a lot of, of different uh, uh, powers to uh, encourage unionization, to make sure that unions aren't subject to a lot of the same standards that 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 corporations are. For example, you know, unions don't uh, have to worry about antitrust, uh, even though. You know, if we had if we had one company controlling uh, all of the production in one industry, we would all agree that that's a really big problem for, mm -hmm. for competition. But when you have one union controlling all the labor for one industry, that's apparently fine. Uh, so these kind of asymmetries in in the law, and so as a result of that, unions have a lot of power, and um, they sometimes use that power uh, to you know conduct these sort of strikes that that, that cause big problems throughout the entire economy, and they hurt a lot of people. Um, and that's what happened uh, with the Taft-Hartley Act. There were huge strikes after World War II. Anywhere between two and four million people were on strike at some point between 1946 and 1947. And so this this caused tons of problems and disruptions. And for the first time in a very long time, the voters sent Republicans to Congress. And Republicans got in and they, they amended the National Labor Relations Act. And what we get out of the Taft-Hartley Act is um, it makes it harder to strike. Um, it, pro it prohibits uh, certain kinds of strikes. So, for example, 
uh, a union in a different industry can't go on strike in solidarity mm-hmm. with uh, with a union uh, in a different industry. That sort of thing is allowed in lots of countries, by the way, and it causes really big problems because you have these unions that have nothing to do with the actual dispute that are just striking um, for the fun of it, basically. And then uh, it allowed states to create right to work laws. And this was this has been a really big conservative success story in the past 75 years, which is the steady march of of, um, you know, state level activism that has created a situation now where a majority of U.S. states have have right to work, which says that, you know, you don't have to join the union if you don't want to. And that's just that principle of voluntarism that we talked about earlier. On the question of the the policies that result from the approach to labor and unions in the United States, uh, opponents might make the argument, do make the argument, that you're confusing policies for principles, that these policies don't result in outcomes that we want to see. What, what good are they? Is there a need to reevaluate some of these policies with regards to the principles and the results that they attain? Well, there's always a need to adjust uh, adjust policies to different um, circumstances. So, for example, the um, Janus versus AFSCME Supreme Court decision uh, really uh, uh, restored, uh, in my views, restored common sense to um, how we treat public sector unions, um, which are a whole different animal than private sector unions, by the way. Um, but what it said about public sector unions was that you know you can't be you can't be forced to contribute money to a public sector union without without giving your affirmative consent. And um, and uh, the justification for that was very simple First Amendment argument, which says that uh, public sector unions, by their very nature, are engaged in political uh, political speech because uh, what they do is they represent government employees uh, to the government. And so uh, everything that they do is political in nature, and therefore you can't be coerced to uh, financially support political speech. Um, that's, that's true. This is, again, just an example of, you know, uh, uh, applying the same rules to unions that we would apply to anybody else, which is that you can't be forced to uh, contribute to political speech. In response to that, conservatives now have, have been um, uh, making sure that state law actually follows that decision. And so we've seen a lot of states uh, getting rid of things like automatic dues deduction, which said mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the federal government is, t- or, excuse me, the state government is taking your dues and automatically deducting them from your paycheck and sending them to the union on your behalf without you ever doing anything about it. That's no longer constitutional under the Janus decision. And so, you know, states have to go and update their laws and that sort of thing. But there is, there is, um, you know, the need to adjust to circumstances. But I think overall, if you look at the situation for American workers, most American workers are not part of labor unions. I mean, 94% of the private sector is not unionized. And that number has been has been going down for a while. Um, it has been going down no matter who's president, no matter who is uh, no matter who is in office. We haven't really seen any kind of uh, labor resurgence in actual membership numbers. We've seen a lot of hype about it in the media because uh, they get very excited when companies like Amazon have a unionization scare or companies like Starbucks or things like that. But if you look at it on an economy-wide level, we've, it's been the same trend for, for, for decades, which is people have just decided, hey, I don't really want to be part of an organization that doesn't really represent my interest and doesn't really care to and um, basically just exists to uh, take, take a couple hundred dollars from me every year and give it to Democrats. And I, I don't think that that is something that is in, in, in American workers' uh, interest. And I think that's why you see 
you know, like I said, no matter who is in power, you have seen this 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 trend away from from organized labor. Dominic Pino with us as we talk about the uh, conservative approach to organized labor unions uh, in the United States. There has been over these past couple elections, it appears, a, a realignment among voters, specifically among college educated voters. And on the other half of the equation, blue collar voters in some areas. Is there a need for a change in approach as, as voters also change their allegiances to parties? Well, I think there's two parts of that. First part is um, if it's true that that voters are realigning and are and are voting for a different party, the reason that they're doing that is probably because of what the party believes. Um, it's probably not a sign of um, you know a smart political strategy to change what your party believes and make it sound more like the party that they just left. And I think that's what some of the arguments for a, a more accommodating conservative approach to organized labor end up sounding like, which is, well, we need to, you know, we need to be more friendly to, to unions because that's what Democrats did. And, um, and, and that's who these people used to vote for. And it's like, well, yes, they used to vote for them and they don't anymore. And part of the reason might be that they actually uh, want a, a, a different, a different, uh, a different choice on, on these things. And so uh, I think it's smart for conservatives to continue to provide that different choice. The second part of that is most unions in the United States are not blue collar organizations. The bulk of union membership in the U.S. is in the public sector. These are mostly white collar jobs. These are mostly, um, you know, bureaucrats and uh, uh, and things like that. Uh, but also, you know, teachers and police and fire and things things of that nature. These are not, uh, you know, with the exception of teachers, which in some states are not paid very well. Some states are paid very well, but in some states they're not. Most of these are pretty, uh, pretty well-paying jobs. Uh, most of them have excellent benefits. These are not the, the downtrodden masses. Um, that's not who labor unions in the United States represent. And what we've seen actually is a lot of the, the very little growth that there has been in, in unions. If you break it down, the growth is in the white collar part of, 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 uh, of, of unions in the United States. It's not, it's not the blue collar workers. We don't see uh, a lot of uh, a lot of that, and and it, and and the reason for that is, uh, as we've seen overall, is that you know white collar workers have been leaning more more democratic, uh, and so it's it's really the mirror image of the of the the blue collar uh, you know blue collar workers moving over to Republicans. To the extent that that's happening, um, it's being mirrored by some white collar workers moving over to Democrats, and therefore we see that they are more. Uh, more likely to be to be unionized. Now, Democrats, of course, are not changing their position on this because it's very financially beneficial for them to have um, these organizations that spend lots of money on behalf of Democrat causes. But also, and this is really the key to their power, is they supply a lot of volunteer, um, a lot of volunteers for political campaigns. And so, that's one of the things that 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 really helps them. It's you know the the money is one thing, and that's and that's certainly an issue. And um and 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 you know unions are usually able to outspend conservatives on basically any uh, issue if they decide to care about it. But they are also able to supply the from their membership you know huge amounts of campaign volunteers to go knock doors, make phone calls, and all that kind of stuff. And that's where they provide a lot of value to 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 Democrats. Uh, in particular. And so, uh, you know, Democrats aren't changing on this. I think it's good for Republicans to uh, continue to provide an alternative and and a choice and actually have a contrast here, because I think it's attractive to most people who actually believe that unions should be voluntary 
uh, we should we should know what they're doing. They should be transparent and they should be held accountable for, uh, you know, economic damage that they cause because of, uh, you know, uh, different uh, work actions and, and strike demands and things like that. Dominic, if not a union specifically, what about this idea that is popular among some on the right now pushing for reform of, of works councils, which are popular right now in Europe? They're not technically unions. They operate independent of those, at least in, in, in some countries. What about this idea of a works council to give more power to workers? Unions in Europe have always been constituted quite differently than they are in the United States. And so, um, first of all, in, in Europe, the uh, you know, each political party in those countries, and again, a lot of these countries have, you know, three to five major political parties, unlike we do. Um, and so, you know, they'll have uh, different unions will kind of be associated with different parties, and each party kind of has its own, you know, sort of labor movement as, as a part of it. You know, obviously, the, the left-wing parties are usually stronger on this than the right-wing ones are, but there are some, uh, you know, major unions in a lot of these countries that support uh, the the sort of the center-right uh, political party in whatever country that is. Um, and uh, and unions there, just in general, too, are not as political of, of organizations. They're usually kind of part of a sort of corporatist uh, economic and, and government structure where the government the employer group and the union group all kind of work together to form labor market regulations. And there's, um, you know, there's a, a repeated, uh, a repeated interactions between those all the time. So they kind of have an incentive to get along at least with a little bit with each other and not be um, antagonistic all the time. That is not how United States labor relations are set up at all. Um, they are set up with under the assumption that um, labor and employers are opponents uh, that one of them uh, has to has to win and the other one has to lose in, in contract negotiations, and that uh, the federal government should play a more hands-off role um, and then possibly mediate if 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 things get really if things get really tough. Um, that's just a very different view. And so, sort of mapping European labor practices onto the U.S. is just not um, it, it, that's, that's going to be a very very hard sell, um, just on a practical level. But also on a, um, uh, you know, looking at the results, I think Americans should be um, should be wary of the the European labor model. If you compare it to Europe, where they have much less flexible labor markets because of of unionization, because of you know government regulation, um, what you find is that they have lower life cycle wage growth. And what life cycle wage growth is is the idea that you know over over uh, over the span of your career, you know how much do your wages personally grow? Um, and so, uh, what he finds is it's basically it's a very strong correlation that countries with more flexible labor markets have um, have higher life cycle wage growth. And so, uh, you you know workers in the U.S. have many more opportunities to make more money. And the reason for that uh, it's it's a, it's a very good kind of virtuous cycle, which is the idea that okay, if I have a flexible labor market, that means that it's going to be easier for me to find the right employer that will value my skill set the most highly, right? And then because I know that, um, that, that that's the case, I then have extra incentives to develop more skills and, and to learn new things because I know that I'll be able to find a different employer that will value those skills more highly. And I can, I can move from, from job to job and each time gets, get higher pay. And that's not how, that's not how things work in Europe. You know that flexibility in the U.S. is something that American workers really value. If you ask, you know, all these kind of opinion surveys uh, 
They'll say, you know, Americans will say at a much higher rate that they value flexibility and they value higher pay too. Um, and they value that over things like, you know, really uh, strong job security or, or, or things like that because, you know, Americans have a little bit more of an entrepreneurial bent. And I think that that's a really good thing. And I think that's the thing that's a source of national strength for the U.S. And we've seen that in uh, economic results. Dominic Pino, he is with National Review, the Thomas Rhodes Journalism Fellow at the National Review Institute. Dominic, thank you so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Thank you, Scott. It was fun. We thank both guests for joining us today. Chris Griswold, Policy Director at American Compass, more at AmericanCompass.org. And Dominic Pino, Thomas Rhodes Journalism Fellow at National Review Institute, NationalReview.com. For additional episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or anywhere you find your audio. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network.